Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. The triumphal entry. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, Why are you doing, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And now chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. Jesus delivered to Pilate. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate, accused, Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Fred. Uh, my name's Harrison. I'm one of the pastors here at EP. Uh, we get to dive into God's Word this morning, and, 
and get a taste of how he takes our tragedies and brings them out into eternal triumph. Will you join me in prayer? Father, Father, thank you for letting us come before you this morning in prayer and freedom and in confidence into the throne room of grace. Lord, the day will come when we will behold your face, face to face. Oh, Lord, until that day comes, until that day comes, Father. Lord, use us here on this earth to bring you glory. Father, help us to have a grasp of who you are, who we are in you and who you are in us, how you've called us to live. Father, even this morning as we open your word, I pray that you would open our hearts, that you would transform us by your amazing grace. Father, I pray for myself as I would open your word to preach. Lord, that you would uh, strengthen me to preach your word for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory. In Jesus, amen. When I was a, uh, a child in middle school and high school, we lived on, on Lake Martin in Alabama, and my mom was in real estate there. So she had a, a, a knack for knowing which cabins were being used and which cabins weren't being used and how much they were worth. Uh, and it, it came to pass that for a few years in a row, uh, she would buy a cabin in the fall that might not have been used for a year or two. And I'm sure she bought it at a good price. And then uh, we would work on it over that fall and that winter and on into the spring. We would knock down walls. We would repair or replace windows. We would uh, redo the kitchen, uh, redo floors, patch roofs, uh, put paint on things, build decks, all sorts of stuff. And then we would sell it for a hefty profit uh, in the spring. Or they would sell it for a hefty profit in the spring. And I would get $10 or $5 or something. <laughs> I never understood that. $20,000 here, $5 here. Anyway, it was fun. It was fun for me. I enjoyed that. Um, and, and I still enjoy that kind of thing. It's, it's, it's something, there's something that's really satisfying about taking something like that and, um, and, and, and making it into something, well, something better than you. But if you were to come in in the middle of the process, you would see windows gone. Uh, you would see uh, doors gone. You would see sawdust littering the floor, plumbing sticking up out of the floor, wires coming down from the ceiling. And you might think, what a wreck. What a wreck. If all you saw was the sawdust and the mess. But if you had the vision of the builder and you knew where it was going, then all the mess in the middle would make sense, wouldn't it? C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers and making courtyards. 
You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Amen. God is building a palace in you, and he intends to live in it himself. It might look like tragedy in the meantime, but in the end, it's a triumph, a triumph to his name and a triumph to your good. For the people of, of Israel in that day, they're looking at Jesus coming into the city on a donkey, and they're thinking, triumph, triumph, triumph. And they're singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In that part of the world at that time, a leader wouldn't come in on a donkey for, for conquest. He would come in on a war horse. A Roman leader, anyone else, would, would, would head out of the city for the conquest on a war horse with all of his armor shining and the soldiers behind him. And after the conquest, he would return into the city with a wreath upon his head, a victor's wreath. And he would be on that war horse and, and heading into the city, leading the procession before him. And all the crowds would be shouting, glory, glory, glory to this leader on a war horse. If a leader were coming into a city for treaty, for peace, he would ride a donkey and not a war horse. The people are seeking triumph over Rome, but Jesus comes in on a donkey, not a war horse. It was something that had been prophesied by Zechariah in chapter 9. Of Zechariah. In verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And in Psalm 118, beginning in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The people wanted a hero to deliver them from Rome, which makes sense. They naturally wanted a relief from the consequences of a Roman occupation. It was a brutal occupation. We're some distant from it at this point. But there were times that it would not have looked too dissimilar from what Russia has done to Ukraine. The people wanted deliverance from that. And so they cried out Hosanna as they saw Jesus, this Messiah, coming into the city on a donkey. Hosanna means save us. They shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They wanted to be saved. Save us from Rome. Save us from the pain. Save us from the chaos and the crisis and the confusion. We are the people of God, but there are other people that are over us. Lord, save us. They didn't want to be saved from their religiosity, nor typically do we. We're human, just like they are. They didn't want to be saved from their comfort. They didn't want to be saved from their comfort and their sins. They didn't want to be saved from that. They were comfortable there. They didn't want to be saved from their idolatries and their ways of living. They didn't want to be saved in their souls because they didn't know they needed that. They wanted Jesus to bless them. 
They wanted Jesus to do things for them, to make their life better, to give them triumphs and victories and trophies, to do everything for them in the way and the time frame that they determined was best. They're really no different from us in that way. We're no different from them. But their need, their need, their tragedy was much greater than they knew. Yes, Rome was brutal, but the sin in their souls was more so. They didn't need a military hero or a genie to give them comfort and pleasure and earthly victories. What they needed was a savior, a savior for their souls. This week, this week would not turn out as they planned, would it? I wonder how many days into the week it was before they knew that their hopes for a military hero were coming to naught. During the course of the week, they see Jesus cursing a fig tree and then explaining to his disciples and others that might have been listening what that was all about, that it was cursed way down to its roots, that the people of Israel had thought of themselves as the people of God, but the people of God was much larger than just a nation. He spoke in that same passage about mountains and mountains that if you, if you believe, if you believe and don't doubt, they'll be thrown into the sea. He's expanding the vision of the disciples. He's expanding the vision of the people of Israel. He's tearing them down and spreading sawdust upon their floor, but he's telling them the world, the vision of God for you is greater than all of that. He cleanses the temple of its unholy use of, of those that would use it with thievery and, and ill motives. This would have been hard for those that were the businessmen in the city that had erected the tables in front of the temple so that people could come up and they could conveniently buy, buy doves and pigeons and other things for the sacrifices or so they could come over here and they could exchange their money from their, their home country to, to money that, that they could use as offerings in the temple. It was a very convenient thing for all of the people. And Jesus cleanses all of that. So the people have to set up shops somewhere else. And, and the, the individuals that had frequented those shops had to go to different blocks down the road before they could come to the temple. It was an inconvenience for some and a crisis for others, a lot of chaos and confusion. And you wonder why would Jesus go to, go to that length? Does he care more for holiness than he does for their comfort and their convenience? Absolutely. Absolutely he does. And it's... It's even made more intriguing by the fact that in two days, just, just two days after that, he would be, he would be tearing the, the, the veil in two and removing that veil, that barrier between God and man. And in chapter 13, he tells them the day is going to come when the whole temple is going to fall. So why is Jesus so concerned for holiness in that place with the temple? Well, that's, that's the whole reason he came to die in the first place. Because without holiness, we will not see God. He came to save us from our sin and our lack of holiness. 
Holiness is important to Jesus. And we are important to Jesus, so he cleanses us of that unholiness. Life isn't easy for them. And as the week goes on, I wonder if their hope began to dim. They're wanting deliverance from Rome, and yet in one scene there, uh, in, in this last week of the life of, of Jesus, uh, they're, they're trying to trap him with coins, and they, and they want to know, who do we pay taxes to? Caesar, Rome, or the temple? And he asks for a coin, and, and they give him a coin, and he says, whose picture's on the, on the coin? Who's, who, whose engraving is there? Well, it's Caesar. Well, you give to Caesar what's Caesar's? And give to God what is God's. In other words, pay your taxes, people. Now, that would be a real tragedy because a week from tomorrow, taxes are due. Don't forget that. For these people, they're wanting deliverance from Rome, and Jesus is saying, pay taxes to Rome. Their hopes are being dashed. Their military hero isn't what they thought. Thursday of that week, the Passover's preparing. Our Lord dines that night with, with his 12 closest friends, his disciples. And he washed their filthy feet. And he fed them bread and wine that, that symbolized the body and blood of the slain Passover lamb that symbolized his own death. He knew what was really going on, but I wonder if they knew anything at all. And then the triumphal entry turned into the greatest tragedy of, of chaos and pain as the arrest took place. At least the disciples were in despair. I wonder about the rest of the city. Where was their triumph? John Calvin said, we can never really seek God in earnest until we despair of ourselves. Well, by the end of the week, with the crucifixion and coming, and it looks to all that there is reason to despair of themselves. But the Father will waste none of that. On the one hand, this this tragedy of the crucifixion was the only, of the only true innocent man is of the absolute worst sort ever. But add to it that he was God and the tragedy is all unthinkable. But I suppose there's the, the great paradox, right? For in this greatest of tragedies, there's also the greatest of triumphs. It's a triumphal entry that, that the people did not see coming. If Jesus had given them all of the freedom that they wanted, all that they desired, freedom from Rome, a military hero, hero rather than a savior of the soul, they wanted their Barabbas, the leader of an insurrection over Jesus. They wanted someone who had led a revolt against Rome rather than someone that comes in on a donkey. They wanted the pleasure of the powerful and the will of the Pharisees more than the life of the innocent King Jesus. They desired the religiosity and the legalism of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes more than they desired the holiness and the grace of Jesus Christ. What if Jesus had given them what they wanted? That would be an eternal tragedy. There would be no Savior. 
that would have no triumph. Oh, they'd have a triumph of their own making, but it would be a tragedy forever. What about you and me? What about us? What if God has given us everything that we've asked for, everything we've demanded, everything we've gone to him and to argue with him about the timing and the way, and the, Lord, give us this, give us this, give us that. What if he, he gave us all that we've asked for, desired in our whole lives? Think about it. If he'd given you everything you've asked for, would you ever run to him? Would you ever run to him? I think not. If he gives us all the comforts and all the pleasures and a safety net of wealth that keeps poverty away, money that never runs out, reputation admired by all, fame and power, love without pain, and bodies that never break or die, friends that are always faithful, what if? What if he gave us all of that? Will we run to him? A father doesn't waste any of those moments or events or days, even the darkest ones. He will redeem and he will restore. For his glory and for the good of his children, there's something about the crisis and the, the, crisis and the chaos and the, the confusion and the pain that drives us ever deeper into an, a deeper, 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 intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is worth it all. It's worth all the pain. So very often our human triumphs are, are really tragedies, you see, because they, they take us away from Jesus. Thankfully, because of his love and his grace, Jesus redeems even those and, and continues to draw us into him. Think of the tragedy and the triumph of that week through the eyes of Jesus Christ. He's on, the, he's on the donkey, he's entering into the city, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the crowd was shouting so loud and making such a ruckus that in, in Luke, it, not in Mark, but in Luke it's recorded that the Pharisees come to Jesus and ask him to get his people to just shut up. Now, that's paraphrase. I don't think shut up exists in that language. That's the impact. And he says to the Pharisees, if they were silent, even the rocks would cry out. Even the rocks would praise Jesus' name, and rightfully so. And I think it's worth noting that the rocks would give him a whole lot less trouble than we do. He sees all of that. He sees the people and their joy, and he knows, he knows that their joy is unfounded because he's not going to give them what they want. He also knows, though, that in the end, he's going to give them a greater triumph than they could ever imagine, for he will give them eternal life. He sees things differently. There's the tragedy of the arrest that he experiences that week, and, and the disciples have to wonder, is the Roman government stronger than their deliverer? And you got the scene in, in, uh, in chapter 15 of Mark. Let me read it to you, beginning in verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? You think, Yes, yes, yes. But they were, No, 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 no. 
The chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him released for them, Barabbas, instead. What shall I do with him with the king of the Jews? And the crowd shouted, crucify him. And they said it again, crucify him. And so Pilate had him led away to be crucified. The triumphal entry was not what the people thought it was to be. But for Jesus, it was everything he thought. It's the greatest tragedy. The crucifixion of an innocent man. The crucifixion of God. And yet at the same time, it is the greatest triumph. For it is a triumphal entry, not, not just into Jerusalem, but it is a triumphal entry into our souls. For the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have life. We have victory over death. It's a triumph, yes, not without cost. The cost that Jesus pays for you and for me, all of grace. There is tragedy, but even in the tragedy, God is still good. My favorite coffee cup lately is, a, is, is one that I drank from this morning and meant to bring it and left it on my desk at home. Uh, it's, it's navy blue. I got it in Bar Harbor, Maine at the Life is Good store. And it says in big, bold letters across one side of it, life is good. And when I pick it up with my right hand, that's what faces me. It says life is good. So in the morning as I'm drinking my coffee and, and diving into Scripture where Jesus meets me and reminds me again that life is indeed good, I've got a reminder in the Word. I've got a reminder on the coffee cup. Coffee is important. So the cup you drink from it is very important, you see. And so you have to have all of that together. Life is good, but life is also messy, right? It is messy because we're messy people. And the church is a gathering of messy people around a God who is not messy but has taken our mess unto himself. Life is good because Jesus has taken our mess by grace. Tragedy is a part of life, my friends. Chaos and Crisis and confusion and pain, it's part of life. Sometimes small, sometimes large, but it is there through it all. Through it all, the greatest need that we have is for our souls to be delivered, for our sins to be forgiven, for us to have that intimacy with Jesus Christ forever. He doesn't promise that the pain and the crisis will go away, but he promises to be there in the pain with us. And he promises that when this day is done, when our life is over, when we breathe our last breath, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that you will breathe your next, next breath face to face with the living Lord. I love the scene from the line of the witch in the wardrobe. When Aslan says that the witch... The witch would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, that the table would break and death itself would start working backwards because of the triumph of Jesus Christ. You pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your triumphal entry into this world. Dear virgins, wow. And we thank you for your triumphal entry into our lives. 
Lord, that you redeem and restore us even in the midst of our greatest brokenness. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, thank you for taking our pain, our punishment. Thank you for taking our crucifixion and our hell. And thank you for giving us life. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen.